Japanese diplomat Kichisaburo Nomura saw American President Franklin Roosevelt in late July of 1941. America had frozen Japanese assets after Japan had taken southern Indochina. Nomura was attempting to make sense of the situation and soothe the relationship between the increasingly hostile countries. Roosevelt got some frustration out about developments in Japan. He was concerned that Nazi Germany pushed Japan to expand southward. He was also worried that Japan had further plans in the Dutch East Indies. He implied that Japan would expect a harsh response from America if it went for oil there. Roosevelt wanted Japan out of Indochina, but Nomura wasn't confident this would happen. As it turns out, Nomura was right. Japan planned to stay in Indochina, at least until its war with China was over. Japan hoped talks and negotiation could make America understand where the country was coming from. It hoped direct diplomacy could resolve the tension that was building. So, it called for a summit. The problem was that there was tension between Nomura's attempt at diplomacy and the decisions of his leaders back home. Japan was expanding through force and ultimately preparing for war. Its military leaders in particular wanted war. At the same time, it was trying to negotiate and maintain peace through diplomacy in Washington. Japan would continue this seemingly contradictory strategy through the rest of 1941. Would they be able to do both at the same time? Or would their military preparations make diplomacy a lost cause? Welcome to the points of no return in history. My name is Dave Knoll. Last week, we saw how miscommunication between Japan and America led to distrust between the two superpowers. Today, we will explore how they tried to come back to the table, but how real negotiations were nowhere to be found. Peace in our time, English Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain famously declared upon exiting his airplane in September of 1938. He had just met with Adolf Hitler in Munich. Supposedly, Hitler had agreed to stop German aggression if he were allowed to take the German-populated Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain felt he had obtained a great assurance of world peace. The United Kingdom and others felt that if they gave Hitler a little bit, he would be content. This strategy has become known as appeasement. It was an obvious failure as we reflect on the build-up to the European theater of World War II. Hitler could never have been appeased. This failure was evident to American officials as they negotiated with Japan three years later in 1941. They would be wary of Japan acting like Hitler, grabbing small things in East Asia here and there, all the while claiming just a little more would be enough. They would want to avoid appeasement. Japanese Prime Minister Fumimaro Konoye felt that a summit with Roosevelt would solve their differences. If the two countries compromised and worked together, it would be possible for peace to be ensured. Meanwhile, American Secretary of State Cordell Hull was concerned that Kanoye's idea for a summit felt a little too much like appeasement. Hull turned down Prime Minister Kanoye's request. The Roosevelt administration felt that the Japanese had yet to make enough concessions to warrant a summit. There was real concern in the Roosevelt administration that Japan was not serious about coming to the table to negotiate in good faith. After all, they had just taken southern Indochina. Still, Japan did not give up the idea, and Roosevelt himself was also still open to the possibility of participating in a summit. 
He just wanted Japan to show it was willing to negotiate and make concessions. Specifically, he asked for Japan to commit to peace and non-aggression in East Asia. Hull asked that Japan give sufficient explanations about what he saw as the country's worst actions. How could Japan explain or rectify the invasion of China and the participation in the Tripartite Pact? Remember, the Tripartite Pact was the agreement between the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, Japan. Hull was also concerned about Japanese trade preferences to those in the East Asian region. If they couldn't explain these things, there would be no meeting. Japan decided to put something together that would try to answer American concerns. They hoped the U.S. would subsequently agree to a summit. After a draft was composed, it needed to be made official. This was planned to happen at an upcoming conference, September 3rd, to be precise. The question remained whether Japan would make enough concessions to satisfy America. Something else also lingered in the air surrounding the upcoming conference. Would Japanese preparations for war get in the way of the pursuit of negotiations? Self-imposed deadlines can be helpful. They were helpful for me while writing my dissertation. They're even helpful as I make this podcast. Lots of time can seem useful to getting a lot done, at least until human nature and procrastination gets in the way. In the fall of 1941, Japan felt the need to impose a deadline on itself. The problem was that the consequence to missing this deadline was not small. The consequence was war. Leaders convened on September 3rd. You might think that negotiations would have been a top priority, given what Hull had asked of them. Instead, they focused on being ready for war. They set a deadline, October 10th. By this time, negotiations would need to be successful. If not, diplomacy by force would have to replace peaceful alternatives. Japan felt so agitated at this moment, at least in part because they believed that America was not being reasonable. But more importantly, Japan came to feel that if they were going to defeat the United States in a war, they had to do so quickly. The longer they waited, the more of an upper hand America would gain because of its advantage in industrial capabilities. The deadline, meanwhile, still needed Japanese Emperor Hirohito's official approval. He would give it, albeit very reluctantly and passively. Hirohito wanted diplomacy and peace. At a meeting on September 6th, he surprised everyone and spoke. He hardly ever did this. He was more than a political leader. He was seen as a divine figure. He read a poem. Quote, All the seas everywhere are brothers one to another. Why then do the winds and waves of strife rage so violently through the world? Still, the plan was approved. Hirohito communicated his wish to make negotiation a priority over war, but in line with custom as emperor, he gave his approval of the deadline. The emperor hardly ever meddled in decision-making. He was there because of his divine-like credibility. Unfortunately for Hirohito and other Japanese officials who wanted to negotiate, the next month would not bring any progress on that front. Negotiations were nowhere to be found. Before America would come to the table, they wanted a number of things. For one, they wanted Japan to signal that they would immediately back out of China. All the while, America remained skeptical of Japan, the same country that invaded China and signed an alliance with the fascists. The deadline of October 10th rapidly approached. This was a deadline for war if diplomacy failed. This was true even after it was pushed back five days to October 15th. Prime Minister Kanoye put together a meeting to try to figure something out. 
The only problem was that Kanoe and Army Minister Hideki Tojo saw the best way forward differently. Tojo would make a drastic move. He would try to get the Prime Minister to step down. Things moved quickly starting on October 12th, the day Kanoe held the meeting. It was at his house outside Tokyo. The deadline was in three days. The difference in outlook between Kanoe and Tojo flared up here. Kanoe wanted to pursue peace, to give diplomacy a real chance. Tojo, however, seemed more and more convinced that war with America was becoming inevitable. The sticking point was the war in China. America refused to take diplomacy forward without Japan quickly pulling out of China. Kanoe wanted to work with America on this. However, Tojo was offended at this demand. Tojo yelled at one point during the meeting, quote, The stationing of troops is a matter of life and death to the army. No concession in that direction. While Tojo had conceded that eventually Japan could pull out of China, now was not the right moment. For one thing, they needed to be there to fight the communists and keep them from taking over East Asia. As a quick reminder, China was locked in a civil war between nationalists and communists prior to the Japanese invasion in 1937. Tojo also felt Japan needed to stay in China to bring structure to the country and the entire East Asian region. And Japanese rule would bring economic development. Kanoye, meanwhile, continued to push for diplomacy with America. He wanted to avoid war with an enemy that very possibly overmatched Japan. The discussion continued a couple days later at a cabinet meeting. This time Tojo made his point even more emphatically. He screamed, quote, I make no concessions regarding withdrawal. He continued to yell as he argued. Everyone else went quiet, including Kanoye. After this, Prime Minister Kanoye stepped down. The sharp disagreement had gotten to him. The stress of the job in the moment had also gotten to him. Tojo had actually wanted Kanoye to resign and had yelled and screamed at the cabinet meeting at least in part to try to press this outcome. Japan would have to find a new prime minister. Because the country was in such an important moment in its foreign policy, the new leader would have to be familiar with the ins and outs of all the moving parts. One person who fit this description was Army Minister Tojo. He had not necessarily intended to be considered for prime minister when he tried to push Kanoe out, but he was a great candidate for the position. He was loyal to the emperor and had sway over the at times rebellious military. Tojo was chosen, and on October 17th, he took the position. He, of course, would become one of Japan's most well-known figures in World War II, leading the country through the conflict as prime minister. It was here that he took a major step forward in becoming who we know him as today. Tojo took over the job in a tough place. Negotiations with America were not going well. Hirohito, however, gave him more time to figure things out. Remember, the Japanese had decided upon an October 15th deadline, which was already in the rearview mirror. The emperor went back on what he had previously approved and got rid of the deadline, telling Tojo to start things over, to analyze the whole situation again. As prime minister, Tojo did not take the same war-first approach he had taken when he was solely the army minister. He had different people and things he was responsible for in the new post. Tojo held numerous conferences at the end of October. Japan needed to figure things out, including how they would negotiate. Here's what they decided. They would pull out of China, albeit over an extended period of time. They wouldn't discriminate in trade, should all other countries do the same. They would stay in the tripartite pact, and they would not approve Holt's Four Principles. This blueprint became known as Plan A. 
The problem was that it didn't concede nearly enough to America. Would Japan be willing to do enough to prevent war? How much would they give their negotiators in Washington to work with? Would they even give them a chance to make peace? That is, would they concede enough for America to even consider taking away their oil embargo and other economic sanctions? These were the questions that plagued Japan at the beginning of November 1941. In early November, a conference began that would prove to be extremely important. It was here that Japan's diplomacy deadline was determined, December 1st at midnight. It was also here that they finalized their last two proposals to America, what will be called Plans A and B. As they debated the deadline, you could tell there was tension. Some in the room thought, hey, it's been long enough. Diplomacy is not working. Let's go to war. Generally speaking, the military felt this way. Others, like the foreign ministry, wanted to give negotiation a chance for as long as they could. You could see this tension even as they decided what hour the cutoff would be, let alone the day. November 30th was decided. Then there was a pushback as to what time that day. Negotiators could have all day, right? So then, that night at midnight? That's what they decided. Midnight, December 1st. Then they debated what it was the Japanese diplomats could negotiate with. That is, how far was Japan willing to go to avoid war? What would they give up? Prior to this conference, they had already decided on what was called Proposal A, in which they would eventually leave China, among other things. The question was, though, would Japan be willing to concede more than this? Those at the conference debated the second plan, that is, Proposal B. In this proposal, Japan would give up more. It was supposed to be offered to America after they had turned down Proposal A. In Plan B, there were numerous provisions. Japan would not expand in the South Pacific as long as the United States did the same. The two countries would work together in pursuing natural resources in the Dutch East Indies. And trade between the two countries would go back to how it was prior to the American sanctions of the previous summer. One last provision of Plan B was the sticking point. They would send their troops out of southern Indochina and place them in northern Indochina and take them out of Indochina altogether should there be an end of hostilities. Japanese military leaders did not like this last condition. They felt it was giving away too much, and even if they left Indochina, they believed America would still continue its economic sanctions. Finally, there was a bargain. The military would concede to leaving southern Indochina if the United States agreed to refrain from getting in the middle of Japan and China. Would this be enough for diplomats to work with? Now it was up to the Japanese foreign ministry to try to make it work. Otherwise, Japan would look to solve its problem with America using its military. Japanese Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo had pushed hard to get Plan B approved at the early November conference. He had gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the military leaders, matching their urgency and intensity. Togo was worried, though, should the United States want more from Japan than the proposal gave them. He was so worried that he gave diplomat Kuchisaburo Nomura some help in the form of another ambassador who was to go to Washington. Nomura had been negotiating there on behalf of Japan. Now he would have another diplomat to help him. The problem was that these ambassadors only had a month to figure things out. The December 1st deadline was approaching. War was looming in the background. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Points of No Return in History. 
As a show note, I'm slowing things down here a little bit. I'll be releasing shows every other week now. So, in two weeks, we will continue our series, Japan Attacks America and the Small Things That Led to It. I'm also re-recording some of the first series on Hitler's rise to the Chancellorship. I plan to release this with parts one through four all in one episode, in case you like listening to things that are a bit longer. I am grateful for the work of two historians whose books I have consulted for this series. This includes John Tolan's book, The Rising Sun, as well as Ari Hada's book, Japan, 1941. For a more in-depth look at the build-up to Pearl Harbor, these are great resources. Please rate and review the show, and please subscribe and tell your friends. It really helps us out. Have a good one, everybody.